Hello friends, it's me, your old pal Will, here with Season 5, Episode 25 of Vinyl Omatic. We will continue uh, and actually conclude our journey through albums that start with letter T as in Delta. Not only that, we'll also be bringing you an interview with the co-directors of Vinyl Nation, Kevin Smokler and Christopher Boone, coming up shortly. But before we get to that fun part, let's hear from the great Kate Bush. Thank you. 
Alright, that was, yes, The Cult with their song Dreamtime from their album called Dreamtime, their 1984 debut on Beggar's Banquet. Prior to that, we had Bay Area's own, well, mostly Bay Area, Shannon and the Clams, Heads or Tails from the Dreams in the Rat House album on Hardly Art Records from 2013. And we got the show started off with Kate Bush and her song Night of the Swallow from the album Dreaming, released in 1982 on EMI America here in the States. That was her fourth studio album made when she was 23. Uh, That crept into the top 200 and reached number 157 here in the States. Speaking of the good old US of A, I'm about to speak with Kevin Smokler and Christopher Boone, co-directors of Vinyl Nation, a documentary that digs into the resurgence of vinyl records, the diversification of vinyl fans, and what this all means for America today. And now, without further ado... All right, listeners, uh, welcome to the interview segment of the program where we'll be speaking with Kevin Smokler and Christopher Boone, uh, co-directors of the film Vinyl Nation, which will be seeing its... um, proper premiere, if you will, virtual premiere this weekend, uh, coinciding with Record Store Day. Um, welcome. Oh, thanks, man. Thank Great you. to be here. Yeah, appreciate it. Glad you're able to join me. Uh, so yeah, do you want to tell me a little bit about how this project uh, got started, please? Yeah. Um, so I, uh, I, I have, I was not a, this is Kevin, I'm 47 and I was not a record person from childhood. I was born just slightly too late for that. Uh, My parents were huge record people. They had, they had five to 700 records, but I kind of associated the technology with their way of listening to music. I was a, I was a cassette tape generation person and CDs came along when I was like in junior high school. Um, So I, uh, I am a I am of the comeback of vinyl records. Um, I was and and I was actually early to it, which almost never happens to me. I I'm, I'm never early to any <laughs> pop culture trend. Um, but in 2007, I was at a dinner party where someone put a record on, and I thought it was incredibly charming, uh, in a in a retro mid-century kind of way. And I mentioned that to him, and it turns out the host was in the process of selling his turntable and a bunch of old audio equipment, uh-huh. uh, which, he, which, he, which I picked up for a song. And I, I didn't really know what I was going to do with it. Um, and then he said, well, why don't I take you record shopping? And at the time, this was in that very, very brief window before the comeback took off. Um, about 2000 and so 2007 would have been right before the first record store day, which was Mm -hmm. 2008. Uh, And so records at the time were still a cheap way to listen to music. Uh, And I figured it was going to be kind of a way to go to be, to go to like music community college for no money. I was going (laughs) to, I was going to be able to educate myself in all of these ways um, of, in all of these genres and past eras and artists that I was not familiar with. And, um, and I was, and this was before Spotify had crash landed in America and anything like that. I think I, I was an early subscriber to, uh, to RDO and a couple of other, the st- couple of the early streaming services, but I mostly thought of them as ways to discover new music and to organize my existing collection, not ways to do deep research on things from the past. And for some reason, I thought vinyl was going to be great for that. You could pick records up for two and three bucks a piece. And so that's what I did. Um, 
And so I, once records started um, mounting a formal comeback, I had this story nagging in my head, like not why, but what does it mean? Like how many other, how many other genres of pop culture resurrect old formats in the kind of fierce way vinyl has come back, you know? film has not had a resurrection of, of 16 millimeter or, and, <laughs> and, and, and books have not had a, had a, rection, a resurrection of dime paperbacks, um, but vinyl has. And so for the longest time, I was trying to figure out how to tell that story. Uh, and Chris and I, who went to college together, kind of reconnected a few years back uh, when I was on book tour and he invited me to come to Albuquerque where he lives because uh, I had written a book about 80s teen movies to come screen uh, a few 80s teen movies and talk about them afterwards. And uh, he's, a, he's, a film, he's been a filmmaker for a lot longer than I have. And he had some long, uh, long-standing relationships in the Albuquerque film community. Uh, so we did these screenings and we totally hit it off. Um, and he said, uh, I'd like you to see some of my movies. And I did, and I thought they were fantastic. Uh, and so I said, let's make a movie together. And he said, about what? And I said, well, I only do nonfiction, so it will be a documentary. And he said, great, about what? Um, and I and I had precisely one idea for a documentary at that point, which was, which was what does the comeback of vinyl records mean? Um, and I had the title Vinyl Nation, um, but I was, but because Chris had made a movie before and I hadn't, I was unaware of, of what kind of corner we were backing ourselves into by <laughs> calling it that. Uh, on the one hand, we were saving our bacon because it meant we wouldn't have to fly to Japan or Uganda or South Africa or something like that mm -hmm. to talk to people about records. Uh, on the other, it meant we, there was no way we were going to like, we were going to like, hey, Chris, I'll come to Albuquerque for two weeks and we'll talk to the three record stores and 10 collectors in Albuquerque, bim, bam, boom, into post-production. And I think you froze there for a second, Kevin. So I'll pick up the thread just uh, yeah. there. And so, yeah, so when you brought the idea to me, um, I was definitely intrigued because I had only recently gotten back into records or into records, I guess, around 2014. And also I have a teenage daughter. And about a year or so after that, she got her own turntable. And one of the things that I thought, great about that is I'd always wanted to give my daughter the gift of music, but you know, giving her a Spotify playlist, that, <laughs> that's not much of a gift. And mm -hmm. so once she had her turntable, then I could give her records, obviously records of, of artists that she was into, but also things that I thought she might really like from my generation, but she hadn't been listening to yet. And, and that's giving the gift of music was really important to me because that was important to me when I was growing up. So I, I, I was interested when Kevin brought the idea to me. I thought there was something there. And like Kevin was saying, the, the story about records have come back had been told many different ways and magazine articles and some other previous documentaries. So we were more interested in what it means and, and what it means for our country today. And we felt like the only way we could really do that is if we talked to as diverse of a population of record collectors and businesses um, in the in the vinyl industry as possible to really tell that full story. And like Kevin said, with a title like Vinyl Nation, we knew we were gonna have to travel all over the place. And so um, that was both our, our challenge, uh, our limitation, um, and also the goal that we were striving for. That's great, yeah. I, um, I definitely appreciated in the film the, the diversity of, of the people who were interviewed, but also the locations as well. If, you know, it was, it was nice to see it wasn't just Bay Area or New York, uh, all over the place was great. 
And we struggled, to be honest, uh, to see if we could include even more. <laughs> there mm -hmm. were cities that were on our list uh, all throughout pre-production, and that was probably the most painful part of the process, which was like taking cities off because we just logistically, time-wise and budget-wise, couldn't make it. So everybody out in Chicago, we know we didn't get to Chicago. We wanted to get to Chicago. We tried <laughs> to get to Chicago. It did not happen. Uh, and we didn't get to Seattle. We didn't get to Portland. We didn't get to Minneapolis. We didn't get to Miami. Like we know we did our best. Um, and uh, we're, we're really grateful though, that there are audiences in all those cities, uh, thanks to the special release we did back in April to, to benefit record stores on what would have been record store day. And we love meeting new people in all of those different cities. So there's more stories to be told. Great. And I um, uh, was curious, like, how did you, um, how did your initial concept of the film uh, evolve over the time while you were putting it together? Um, we, we got some very, Chris and I were pretty convinced early on when we were pulling our, pulling our, our, our subjects together and who we were going to talk to and where we were going to film. We, the, the thing that guide us, guided us was this, was this sort of question we had about like, so what does the comeback of records means? It, to us, it was a story about inclusion. Um, the comeback has meant that the definition of a record person has changed and it includes more and different kinds of people than, than you thought it did. Uh, and we were kind of good with that for a very long time. And then when we were in, when we were beginning our relationship with our post-production team, one of the early conversations we had with them is them saying, here's how documentaries work. You won't know what it's about until you're about 70% of the way through. And we're like, Tish tosh nonsense. Of course we will. Uh, we know exactly what it's about. We wouldn't have piled ourselves into a rental car and driven all over the damn place if we didn't know what it was about. And sure enough, they were exactly right. We, we, were, we were wrong. I wouldn't say we were dead wrong. We were off um, because uh, what, it, it, what it became and what, what became very clear to the both of us is that the movie was really about music as a as a connective power how music how music connects us and vinyl being a black circle is simply a physical metaphor of of how of music as a as a as a life force that binds us and also in our early planning process when we put together our pitch kit um we actually put it together like an album we sequenced mm -hmm. tracks we had side a we had side b and each of those tracks was distinct distinctive um, in the pitch. And that made a lot of sense. And that's how we could categorize people and who we wanted to talk to and why we wanted to talk to them. So that made complete sense. But like Kevin was saying, once we gave all the footage to our editors and then we were also going through it and looking at those transcripts, um, that looked great as a pitch kit, but putting the story together in a more, with a more narrative structure meant pulling everything apart and mm -hmm. finding those key moments that helped does creative and tell the story. And so Jason Whalen, who is one of our editors and our post-production supervisor, um, really helped us look at it in a different perspective. And he came to us with kind of his take on how it should go. And then Kevin and I were doing a paper edit, edit on our side based on our original pitch. And what ended up happening over the course of time, also when we brought in uh, our other editor, David Fabello, that works with Jason, um, is essentially this hybrid of the two. Um, you can still see 
the skeleton of our pitch, but it flows way better in, a, in, in terms of narrative because of the way that Jason and David looked at that footage. And then we all worked together as a team to parse out those stories because we've interviewed one person over here because they fit that track, but we need to put all these different people together to actually tell the story. And it was always great to hear people essentially say the same thing in their own words and put them all together. And it was also great to have people have very different opinions and then butt them up against each other mm -hmm. and, and essentially have a debate when they weren't in them even in the same room. Um, and for me, the editing process is the final writing of anything, both narrative or, or documentary. So I just love getting in there and just trying a bunch of different things and hashing it out and having conversations with the whole creative team on what works the best. Great. And as uh, somebody who used to do post-production work, I'm just kind of curious how many hours of footage you guys end up with? Oh my God. We interviewed, we had, I think we had 45 distinct interviews and that doesn't count shooting all day long at record store day in Kansas city, all day long at the Austin record convention. Um, hours of footage. I actually, I'm actually 100% sure that the true hours of footage, we ended up, we shot on 4k. So for the editors out there, we ended up with, I think it was 25 terabytes when it was all said and done. Um, it was, a, it was, like I said, 45 interviews, each averaging at least 60 minutes on the conservative mm -hmm. end. So that's 45 hours right there, plus two 10 hour days and those other things. So you're looking at 60, at least 65 hours of footage that our, all of us had to, to parse. 80 billion is the correct answer. <laughs> <laughs> and yet Man, you have an amazing no. product at the end here. So that's. Yeah, all, that's all parsed down, all got it all down <laughs> into that two minute window. So, yeah. Um, do you want to tell me a little bit about uh, what you guys have in store for this uh, coming weekend and the, the premiere? Yeah. Um, so the movie is going to premiere uh, August 28th, which is Friday. Uh, this coming Friday. It's only been seen publicly once. We released it for exactly 48 hours on what would have been Record Store Day weekend this year. That was April 18th and 19th. Uh, and that was a special benefit screening we did for the nation's record stores because we were very worried about them and continue to be um, because times is very, times is very tough in, in, in pandemic America and in the world. Um, for that screening, we let record stores um, sell tickets to see our movie and keep 100% of the profits. Nice. Um, for the um, for our release now, uh, uh, the movie will be available digitally speaking uh, um, from Friday, August 28th through Thanksgiving weekend, which is November 30th. Uh, and you will we will still have this, uh, partnerships with record stores and independent movie theaters and some live music venues and even a couple of vinyl uh, cafes, um, vinyl-related businesses and friends, we like to call them. Um, mm -hmm. And through those businesses, you will be able to purchase uh, a ticket for a 72-hour rental of the movie, um, and we will split the proceeds after the video player takes its cut, 50 50 with those partners. Uh, and we have a master list of all of those partners on our website at Vinyl Nation Film, where you can select whom you would like to benefit from the purchase of your ticket. Um, but the experience of watching the movie will be exactly the same. VinylNationFilm.com is just the front door you walk through. Terrific. Uh, and then I have one final question for you both. Uh, did you find any uh, top 10 want list items when you were going around to the different record stores? Kevin, you Do you want to give the adult answer or you want oh. me to give the... <laughs> you go first and then I'll... And then, no, and you, yeah. 
So we had, we had a rule that, that we didn't know we were going to have to be like super, super strict with until we started filming, which was, which was look, there's, there's only five of us on any given shoot day as part of the crew. We are all going to be carrying hundreds of pounds of gear around. We've got to get on. The way we shot the movie was a week on and a week off. So there was a lot of time going to and from airports. And the rule was no record shopping. <laughs> like like uh, records, uh, records are heavy. Everything, everything, every single thing that is part of this shoot is going to have to be put in a case and carried by one of us. Um, and it just wasn't practical. That, that was enormously difficult. <laughs> that was really, really hard because we were not only um, shooting in places like record stores and record conventions, but pretty much we, we, aesthetically we wanted to shoot people around their records because records are, records are a physical presence in one's home or in one's place of business or what, where one works or spends time with their friends. And so we wanted the physicality of records to be to be visually part of the movie. And so we were just around records and people talking about their favorite records all the dang time. Um, and it was really hard to, to not just want to <laughs> dig for everything in sight. Um, I, I think we largely succeeded. Chris might have a different opinion of that, but. Um. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, I agree. When we first started out, I, at least I was very like, religious about not buying anything just because like I got to stay focused uh I, I was the taskmaster, so I was in charge of the schedule I had to make sure all of our footage was getting collected and downloaded onto the drives and backed up so you know we can't be late for this or that or the other thing and our, I mean our very first shoot was Amoeba Music in San Francisco <laughs> and so you can just understand just how hard it is and I and, and Kevin lives in the Bay Area and I don't and I had visited that store many many years ago but had not been back since records came back the way they have and it was really hard <laughs> to not want to go through the right we're literally shooting people digging for records ourselves are not touching them so so we were good with that but as as the shoot went on that that uh, kind of went out the window uh, Kevin was a little bit better about um managing our kind of relationships with the interview subjects after we finished um, shooting so they wouldn't notice like all of us like scrambling to, to pack everything else up. And in the meantime, if we were in the record store, that meant that Kevin could actually browse a little bit. So he was kind enough to find records for us and, and divvy them up afterwards. So that was great. And then when we were at uh, record store day in Kansas City um, at Mills Record Company, it was about mid afternoon, um, we took a break and the rest of the crew went off and I was still downloading footage in the back office, but I didn't really have to stand by my computer. I, I might've done a little shopping on record. <laughs> yeah. and, and Mills Record Company is so amazing. They get so many copies of Record Store Day releases that there were still Record Store Day exclusives in the middle of the afternoon. So I picked up Green Day at Woodstock because I was at that concert. I got <laughs> that on vinyl. My daughter was helping out at home. I'm going to get Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse as a gift for her. And oh, I'm going to just browse the store a little bit here. So yeah, we, we loosened up. But then, you know, when you have a half a dozen records and you got to shove them into your carry-on, you know, packing them around the t-shirts and stuff, that gets really hard. But um, as long as it was bringing home a record for maybe my daughter and my wife, it was a little bit easier. And then by the end, we, our last shoot was at Third Man Pressing in Detroit and, and the stores in the front of it. And uh, yeah, all bets were off. 
It was what don't I have right now in my collection as far as the white stripes and Jack White. And thank God my wife is a big white stripes fan. So it was like, mm, okay, I gotta get this and this and this. And uh, I don't care how, how much I have to stuff into my bag. Totally understandable. Well, uh, Chris and Kevin, uh, thanks so much for joining me here on vinyl Omatic, and I hope everyone will check out uh, Vinyl Nation coming this weekend to a uh, virtual theater near you. Um, thanks, guys. Thanks, Ben. Appreciate it. Thank you for having us. That was a great interview. Really appreciate the time that they took to talk with me. Uh, and yes, check out the virtual release of Vinyl Nation coming out this weekend, Friday. August 20... Hmm. Let's see if we can do the math here. August 28th. Yes, that's it. August 28th. Uh, go to finalnationfilm.com Now let's chill out with Sonic Boom.
Now we find ourselves at the end of yet another episode of Vinylomatic. Uh, if you recall back there, after our interview with the folks from Vinyl Nation, we heard Spaceman 3 and Ecstasy in slow motion from the album Dream Weapon, an evening of contemporary sitar music. That is a re-release on Superior Viaduct. Uh, features Peter Kember, a.k.a. Sonic Boom, playing a Farfisa and effects uh, in a 1987 studio performance. Follow that up with The Residents, Weightlifting Lulu, from the combo Duck Stab, Buster and Glenn. That is from the Buster and Glenn side. Uh, on Ralph Records, 1978. And we concluded that with Dumb Numbers and Evil Has Grown, from the album called Dumb Numbers, on Joyful Noise Records, at least 2013. That is a project by Australian Adam Harding. Uh, and that track also features Bob Bruno from Best Coast on bass and Murph from Dinosaur Jr. on drums. If you have any questions about what you have heard, please feel free to shoot me an email, will at vinylomatic.com. And of course, you can always find archived episodes, RSS feeds, show notes, Point your browser in the direction of vinylomatic.com. When next we meet, we'll finally venture into albums that begin with letter E as in Echo. Join me, won't you?